So when I was growing up, I was really into soccer, as many of you know, and went on to uh, play in college. Um, but when I was in high school, or actually when I was in middle school, uh, I, as I grew up in northern Wisconsin, with the, it was very uh, unpopulated area compared to here. I went to this Christian school where they had the entire seventh uh, through twelfth grade on one soccer team, and so I was a junior higher playing on varsity, you might say. Um, during that time, though, I did not start those early uh, junior high years um, competing with the older students. And there was a time where I was sitting on the bench. And one of my friends dared me. We saw this gummy bear on the ground, and he dared me. Uh, you should you should throw that gummy bear at the ref. And so, I did. <laughs> Picked up the gummy bear and I chucked it at the ref. And the referee was my actual my actually my social studies teacher, and so he knew me, uh, but he didn't know who threw. Uh, he didn't know exactly who, who hit him with the gummy bear, and so he just turned around at the bench, and he held up a yellow card. Now, uh, if you don't know anything about soccer, in soccer, uh, sort of like maybe in basketball you might be more familiar with, if you get five fouls, or I think it's in the NBA, you get six, you're out of the game. Well, in soccer, if you get a red card, you are disqualified, you have to leave the game, and your team has to play with one less person. And so if you get two yellow cards, yellow being sort of the warning, two yellow cards add up to a red card. And so that was actually my first yellow card. They're not terribly uncommon in soccer. If you're playing physical and you're playing with intensity, you typically will commit a foul that kind of earns you a yellow card. But that was my first yellow card, was throwing a gummy bear at a referee. And some of you are probably thinking, man, Kirk didn't practice for his fine arts snare solo. He's throwing gummy bears at referees. Like, what kind of kid was this? Well, in our passage today, the false teachers also want to disqualify the Colossians. Paul, now in this section of the book, is going to be addressing the false teaching head-on. Uh, we saw the body of the book begin with these words, therefore. In 2.6, he began with therefore as you receive Christ. And so here in 2.16, we have the second therefore. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. We also get these, as Matt was reading uh, this larger section, we see this repeated reference to no one. You'll get chapter 2, verse 4. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive. And so here we get two no ones. Let no one pass judgment on you, 216. In verse 18, let no one disqualify you. And so this is the section of the book where he is addressing the false teaching. Last week, he has told us about the, in chapter uh, 2, 6 through 15, he sort of told us about the fullness of salvation we have in Jesus. Here, he's actually going to address the false teaching much more directly, actually identifying what the false teaching consists of and why it is inadequate. And he uses that language, let no one disqualify you. Really, these two commands kind of go together, right? Let no one pass judgment on you in such a way that they would be disqualifying you. This is a word that comes from the sports arena, sports uh, imagery. It's like getting the red card. It's, it's you are disqualified. You're no longer allowed to play. You are not able to compete for the reward, and the, or it really, it's the idea of, you might think of it as an umpire would disqualify someone. They throw them out of the game. That's really the idea here, is that, is that the, these false teachers would be arguing that 
the Colossians are disqualified by some sort of criteria that Paul says is not legitimate. This is not something that ought to disqualify you. And yet the false teachers are trying to disqualify you. Look at chapter 1, verse 12, where this word showed up previously. Where Paul says that he's giving thanks to the Father as he prays for them. And it's, this, it's the Father who has qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints. In other words, they are qualified to share in the inheritance of salvation. They are qualified. They have full salvation in Jesus as we saw. But the false teachers want to say they are unqualified. They are disqualified because they don't follow the false teachings, particular religious stipulations. And so we are actually going to be dealing with this passage, chapter 2, 16 to 3, 4, in two weeks. There's a lot going on here, and so I don't want to give us, I don't want to bite off more than we can digest this morning. So we're going to take it in two weeks. Um, but our, our, the central message for both weeks will be the same. It's the same passage, and it is this. This is, this is the sermon in a sentence, you might say. This is what Paul wants to persuade us of. It says, knowing who you are in Christ... Don't let anyone disqualify you with their religious stipulations. Knowing who you are in Christ, that's the command he gives, don't let anyone disqualify you with this false teaching of these religious stipulations that they say are, are you have to have in order to really meet their standards. And so in today's sermon, what I really want to do is focus in on Paul's diagnosis of the false teaching. Next week, we will look at more of it, focus in more on his remedy, that is who we are in Christ and how that is a remedy. But today, we'll focus largely just on the religious stipulations themselves, the false teaching themselves, and how they prove to be inadequate. And so I have seven characteristics of the false teaching that we'll look at. This is a diagnosis, the seven features of this diagnosis. And the first one is this. The false teaching with its religious stipulations, first of all, it turns matters of indifference into requirements. It turns things that are permissible, things that are acceptable, they're allowable, they're fine, but it makes them things that are required. It says these are things you have to do. Okay, Look at verse 16, where when Paul says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you, he says, in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Okay? In other words, dietary restrictions, observance of certain holy days. And if we go back to last week's passage where there was a lot of mention of circumcision, it's likely that the false teachers were also saying you have to be circumcised. That they were also, that's why Paul probably brings that up, right? And so all of these are Jewish sort of customs, uh, whether they're things that are, were from the law or sort of just customs that came to be embodied within Judaism. That's sort of what he has in view here, these sort of Jewish customs which, of course, Paul says are fine things to observe. Um, we know that Paul, in the book of Acts, for example, he circumcised Timothy, even though Paul was adamant in Galatians and here. Like, circumcision is not necessary. It is, he says in Galatians 5, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision it, it really is what matters, but faith working through love. And so Paul knows that, that these Jewish regulations are, of, are not required, um, especially of Gentiles. Um, and he, we know that Paul, though, he was willing to circumcise Timothy, though, even notwithstanding that, 
for the sake of making those accommodations so that there wouldn't be any uh, limitations in ministry. There wouldn't be a barrier in Timothy's ability to do ministry. Or we know that Paul fulfilled a vow in the end of, at the end of the book of Acts, right? Probably a Jewish vow, well, most undoubtedly so. He does so at the temple, right? And so there's nothing wrong with these things. There's nothing wrong with following these things, but they are not necessary. And they don't make one spiritually superior as these false teachers seem to be saying, that these are actually things that you have to do in order to be qualified religiously. Paul argues that these Old Testament prescriptions were actually shadows. They're actually intended to be shadows. And so if you think about it, in our, in our house, we have a hallway that kind of makes a bend. And if one of my children is walking around the hallway and the light is shining in the, in the right spot, what, what, what do I see before the child turns the corners? I see their shadow. And I can make it out. It's a small boy who's acting kind of crazy. And I know that's Abel, right? Okay? That's the idea here, is that the shadows, it, it's really a wonderful picture of what we call types, where there, the, there are these pictures, these, are these patterns, these symbols in the Old Testament, things that God ordained, um, but they're meant to anticipate a reality that's greater, something that's actually going to fulfill them. Um, and so the shadow, it gives like the outline of, of the person. In the same way that the shadow gives the outline, so when the reality comes, that's the real deal. It's the real deal. So you think about how Paul used circumcision in our passage last week. That circumcision, physical circumcision, anticipated a heart circumcision. It, it, was, it was anticipating, it was a shadow of something greater that, as Paul says, belongs to Christ. It belongs to the era of Christ. It belongs to him and what he has brought about. But Paul is saying, now the substance is here, as you see in verse 17. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ, and Christ is here. If the substance is here, the shadows are a matter of indifference then. They're not required the very thing that they were all about is here. That's the thing that matters, not the pointer. And so Paul wants to push back against them requiring things that are fine, but not necessary. One of my uh, professors in school, Dr. Carson, in a lecture once, he talked about, he was talking about Galatians similarly here, about how they're, uh, the idea of certain um, Jewish regulations that they were kind of imposing on people. And he was talking about, like, he is more than fine, for example, if he's in a context where it is wise for him not to drink alcohol lest he uh, kind of make someone stumble or something like that. He's fine to withdraw and just kind of give up that right, something that is, it's fine to do. Drunkenness, of course, is sin, but alcohol itself is, is fine. And so he's, but he's fine to give up that right, sort of like Paul fulfilling the vow or circumcising, circumcising Timothy. But he said, and I remember this in, in his lecture, he said, but if someone ever says, you cannot drink alcohol, as if it's like a requirement of what a good Christian does. He said in his French-Canadian voice, pass me the Chardonnay. <laughs> and that always sticks with me. Like he's willing to take a stand when it actually is then going to chip away at something in the gospel, right? That's something that's fine, even, even maybe good for mission, mission and, and ministry reasons. When it becomes, when it moves from that to saying, hey, this is actually like required of people, otherwise there's something inferior about them, spiritually speaking. We've entered into this sort of, work, this sort of uh, works-based mentality. Pass me the Chardonnay. C.S. Lewis said this 
in Mere Christianity. He said, one of the marks of a certain type of bad man is that he cannot give up a thing himself without wanting everyone else to give it up. That's not the Christian way. An individual Christian may see fit to give up all sorts of things for special reasons. Maybe they give up marriage or meat or beer or the cinema, going to movies. But the moment he starts saying that these things are bad in themselves or looking down his nose at other people who do use them, he has taken the wrong turning. And so first, it turned, the false teaching turns matters of indifference into requirements. Secondly, it promotes a sense of superiority. So look at verse 18, where in verse 18 it says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. And so we learn a little bit more about the, the false teaching is not just these indifferent matters of sort of Jewish custom, but it also is asceticism. Or he says later in verse 23, he says, severity to the body. So they were like treating their body poorly, maybe to try to like bring it into sub submission, trying to like suppress their flesh, thinking that sin was maybe bound up in their physical bodies itself. Um, he says, he talks about worship of the angels, so maybe the idea, remember we've seen elsewhere, he mentions rulers and dominions, and there seems to be a fear that they have where he wants to assure them that Christ has actually disarmed these angelic powers, so maybe the idea is they're worshiping the angels to sort of placate them. Um, and then he talks about visions, and maybe it's this idea, again, of uh, with the asceticism and sort of severity of the body and maybe depriving themselves of certain things, they were trying to sort of produce... Uh, these sort of mystic experiences of having visions. And so Paul says, though, that to actually locate religion in these things is to sever yourself from Christ. So look at verse 19 where he says, When they do this, they're not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. And we'll talk more about that next week. But, but to pursue these things is to sever yourself from Christ. It's to actually pursue a different gospel, something other than Christ. But I want to, for our sake today, I want to focus on that line in verse 18 where he says that these practices result in them being puffed up without reason by their fleshly or sensuous minds. In other words, it, it promotes a sense of superiority. You see, our hearts are so sinful that we will even use religion to sort of puff ourselves up. Something that ought to sort of teach us our own inadequacy before God, we actually use that as a means of pride and a means of looking down at other people. As you see, that can oftentimes happen when, when we sort of create these lists of rules or regulations or practices that we say are necessary. We then look at people who don't do those things and we say, well, they're inferior and so, so these false teachers were puffed up by the visions they were having and the things that they practiced. It makes me think of Luke 18 where we have this religious man who says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes and, and, of all I get. But the tax collector who is standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, Jesus says. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me. A sinner. We can easily use our religiosity, ironically, unfortunately, as, as actually, we actually become more sinful even as we try to become less. 
And so we use our religion as a means of, of, of viewing ourselves as superior to others. And, and we don't even want to commit what, the, what that religious man in Jesus' parable is doing here, where we, we look down at other people who do that, right? Where they, we say, well, I'm glad I don't use my religion to feel superior, and now we're doing the same thing ourselves, right? But it's this idea of using our religious activities to feel superior to others. Thirdly, the false teaching makes rules out of things that are mere human teachings, mere human inventions. Paul says in this passage in verse 20, he says that they are, these regulations are, sorry, in verse 22, he says they are according to human precepts and teachings. And in verse 23, he says it's self-made religion, humanly contrived religion. These are human ideas, human teachings. Some of you may know when I went to college, I happened to go to a school. They recruited me to play soccer. And so I happened to go to a school that was very strict. Um, I think easy, easy to say it was quite legalistic. They had incredibly strict rules that were far beyond the pages of scripture. Um, I'm almost hesitant to even tell you what some of, they are, some of them are because they're so ridiculous. Um, like you couldn't listen to music that had drums in it. Certainly couldn't have tattoos showing. Um, you couldn't um, ride in a car together. You couldn't go off campus without like giving a permission slip, ride in the car with females if you're guys. Um, women had to wear skirts. It was very, and, and, and so they had all these sort of rules that clearly go beyond the pages of scripture. Um, and besides just being downright annoying, the, uh, the trouble of it, yeah, there's an amen from Drew. Um, the trouble of it is that these things became equated, whether intentional or not, there was definitely the, it was definitely communicated at times explicitly, but oftentimes implicitly, that these things, this is what it looked like to be spiritual. To do these things, to be the sort of person who never listened to that type of music, or whatever the case may be. And what it is, is it's taking these extra-biblical human rules, these human standards, and saying, this is what it means to truly be spiritual. It makes rules out of mere human inventions. It's, it's what Jesus said in Matthew 15, verse 9, quoting Isaiah, that this people, they teach as doctrines the commandments of men. They teach human commandments as if they are divine imperatives. Fourthly, we see that this false teaching has a misguided concern with mere external, perishable things that are of no actual consequence. It has a misguided concern with mere external perishable things that are of no actual consequence. So Paul summarizes these regulations in verse 21 by using this kind of slogan to represent them. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Like keep away from these things. Don't eat these things, don't touch these things, don't have anything to do with these things. Abstain. And these are all then, he says, referring to things that perish as they're used. Like you consume them, right? Joe Rigney says, um, he says this, quote, to pursue holiness by stiff-arming created pleasures appears to be wise. Ascetic religion and severity to the body may impress lots of people, but their value in promoting godliness is null. The reason should be obvious, right? Sin is not in the stuff. Sin resides in the human heart. It's, it's being consumed with all these external things that actually don't touch on morality, that actually don't touch on the heart. As Jesus said in Matthew 15, the same passage I 
mentioned before, Matthew 15. Jesus said there, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, these sort of unclean foods and things like that, dietary restrictions. It's what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. It's what comes from the heart, not what goes in. It's not the external, ultimately. Not that external has nothing to do with morality. Paul can say that to the Corinthians, who maybe thought that their sex with prostitutes didn't matter because it was just physical, right? Paul is concerned with these external things that have nothing to do with morality, that don't touch on morality, that ultimately were defiled from things that stem from the heart. Fifthly, this false teaching doesn't actually then get to the root of sin. In Colossians 2.23, Paul says that these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to, to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Like these things look wise, it's very religious looking to have all these regulations, all these rules, all these practices. You're, 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 you know, if you think about someone who's maybe like monkish kind of behavior, and in, even in the medieval age, they would like whip themselves, these flagellants. They have all this like very strict religious practice and, and trying to control their body and self-determination. It looks really wise. It looks really spiritual. But none of that actually gets to the heart issue. None of that actually addresses the heart you can beat your physical flesh all day, but it hasn't actually beaten your flesh in terms of your sinful tendencies. And we might think, well, this is all just, you know, this stuff that existed back then. But even today, um, I asked, I mentioned this to Dan, and he said he got the same ad. On Facebook, I've gotten an ad, um, and I, I believe it's a group of uh, men who are Catholic-leaning, and they're trying to promote sort of spiritual disciplines uh, for the sake of you know, religious growth or what have you. And they're advocating this idea of for 90 days taking cold showers. As if cold showers, and they actually in the ad talk about how the cold shower and like the severity that it is to your body, like it's a rough thing to do. That, that, that's a way of actually suppressing like sinful, your sinful tendencies and like growing spiritually. To like subject your body to these things. So this stuff still exists today. It's concerned what? Ultimately with body external certain behaviors that's actually unable to address the heart, which is where sin truly resides. So it doesn't actually get to the root of sin. It just appears wise. And so sixthly, then, it gives this false sense of spirituality, though. It gives a false sense of spirituality. It can appear quite wise. It, it's sort of like if I have... Um, oftentimes I feel like my car often has that, that light on the dashboard that says I need to get the engine checked out for some reason. And I oftentimes put that off, right? Now, what that check engine light is meant to indicate is not that there's a problem with my dashboard, okay? The dashboard is functioning properly. It's meant to indicate that there's a problem under the hood. So if I'm like, you know what? The check engine light is on. That means something's wrong. So what I need to do is I need to go into the electrical part of my car and somehow make that check engine light turn off. There, I've solved the problem. No more check engine light on, right? You're actually, you're dealing with something that's on the surface that maybe looks like, you know, you've dealt with things. Like it looks really religious. You've, you have all these practices, all these external things that give the appearance that everything is in order. The check engine light is off. But the underlying issue still goes unaddressed. 
And we can easily do this when there is such a fixation on rules and regulations and external conformity. It can give off the appearance that things are in order. When we make religion, we make our relationship with God out to be sort of this checklist, that's actually a lot easier to accomplish. It's much easier to accomplish do this, do this, do this, than what Jesus is actually after, as we see in the Sermon on the Mount, heart issues, or as the great Shema, loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Externals are much more easy. It's easier to look holy than to be holy, Mike McKinley says. Or it's like my daughter, as she seeks to learn how to ride a bike, what do we put on that bike initially? We put on training wheels. And if she learns to ride her bike well with training wheels, she could be quite confident in her ability to ride a bike. But if I took off those training wheels, probably she's actually not going to be very good at riding a bike. And so, too, when we fixate on externals, we can kind of feel like we have it all together, like I've checked my box. But really deep down, it's just these training wheels that give a false impression of our maturity. It can, it can feed hypocrisy, even, where we give the outward show of having it all together. We look holy, but really deep down, we're not. What does Jesus say to the scribes and Pharisees? You'll remember in that famous passage where he says, whoa, 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 to the scribes and Pharisees. In Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead bones and uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. When I was in Israel, um, when you're on the east side of Israel, on the east wall, the Mount of Olives, is right nearby, and from a distance, you can't even really tell what's going on there. It just looks like a bunch of like white rocks because a lot of uh, Jewish people want to be buried there, and it's actually a bunch of tombs that are above-ground tombs, not buried below, but there are a bunch of these boxes that are um, like stone, I assume, boxes that are on the Mount of Olives, and it looks like white. It looks like a whitewash kind of idea, and so it looks very pretty. It's very nice. But I know for a fact that inside those boxes, it is not nice. Okay, weird, weird story. There was a, when I was walking on the east side of Jerusalem, there was a man who I assume was not all there mentally, unfortunately, and he came up to me holding a human skull that he had dug out of one of the tombs. He was digging, I saw him digging around, he comes up to me trying to hold, it can be a human skull. Disgusting, absolutely disgusting, decayed human body. But if you look over, absolutely beautiful. And that's what Paul says can happen with religiosity. It can look really great. It looks all whitewashed tombs. You can even imagine Jesus, if he's standing in Jerusalem when he says this, looking at the Mount of Olives, whitewashed tombs, and yet nasty inside, full of dead people's bones. Lastly, seventhly, this false teaching says, it, it promotes this idea that we are qualified based on our religious performance. It is a performance-based mentality. It's a workspace. It's a law-keeping sort of mentality, a regulation-based mentality. And that's what he says, right? He says, he says don't anyone disqualify you. The, the assumption there is that they were trying to use these regulations and these stipulations as qualifications for what it meant to actually be truly spiritual. I was uh, looking through my notes, and I happened to come across, I, I have a folder of uh, different illustrations that I'll keep sometimes, and I happened to come across this uh, section from a book. I had totally forgotten about this. 
And this section of this book, it was sort of on living the Christian life. And in the section, the author makes a recommendation. He creates a chart where he gives you like your Monday, your Monday through Sunday, and he lists out various, there's like boxes for each of these different practices, like things like reading your Bible or going to church or, you know, calling someone and offering encouragement or um, what have you, praying for a certain amount of time. All these sort of like religious practices, the things that in and of themselves are sharing the gospel with someone, things that in and of themselves are, are good. They weren't bad things. But what the chart did was that then it created a point system where every time you do one of those things, like evangelizing is three points, going to church is five points, reading your Bible is two points, praying is one point or whatever. And you're supposed to fill out every day all the different things you do and try to, it says like by the end of every day, you, sh you should have this many points. Okay? I don't recommend doing that. Why? Because one of the dangers with something like that is it, 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 you're, you're focusing so much on, am I performing? Am I doing these things? And it's by doing these things that somehow I reach a certain level of I got this many points and now I'm, now I'm spiritual. Now I'm mature. Now, I don't imagine many of us are doing that, um, creating some sort of chart for us by which we, 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 we sort of equate our, my practices with this is what qualifies me as spiritual for that day. I've met my quota of spirituality. But I do think that we can fall into that same mindset, this sort of performance mentality, where we think I have to do certain spiritual disciplines or I have to act certain ways, and that's sort of what makes me acceptable before God. Or I've sinned, and therefore I need to sort of counterbalance that by, now I read my Bible a certain X amount of minutes or something like that. And maybe it's not as explicit like that, but it's sort of implicit. It's sort of, it's this low-grade guilt that sort of runs beneath the surface. And so how does this, how does what Paul is saying here, like we still have religious practices, right? Like we still do spiritual disciplines. Is Paul like throwing those things off? And I, I say, well, I would say No. The difference is that we don't treat those things themselves as grounds of our qualification. We don't do, like, we don't read our Bible daily because somehow that's giving us points in a qualification chart. It's a difference of our spiritual disciplines, as some have put it, they're meant to serve us, not to enslave us. They're meant to be means of growth, means of enjoying our Savior means of experiencing God's grace, not sort of uh, boxes we check in order to feel that we are somehow qualified as a performance, something that would disqualify us if we didn't do it. And so Paul in this passage, he's not against morals, he's not against commands, he's not against law, like the law is good, Doing, obeying God is good. He's combating a form of so-called Christianity, though, that places observance of religious practices as the measure of our qualification. And Paul combats this. We'll get into this much more next week. But ultimately, Paul combats this with the gospel. What is the answer to human religiosity, thinking that we somehow perform in order to be accepted before God? It's ultimately the cross of Christ, which shows us that our only acceptance before God is what Christ has done. Paul says in, in chapter 2, verse 20, he says that you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, which we might paraphrase as, as something like the basic building blocks of this world order. 
And one of the aspects, the, the, the part that he specifically has in view here with that sort of world system is specifically human religiosity. That, that's what he's talking about in context here, right? Why do you, as if you were still alive to that, submit to this sort of mentality, these sort of regulations? Like, you've died to that. We are a new people in Jesus. The, one of the ways that we die to that is actually in what the gospel shows us, Right? The good news about Jesus' death frees us from such religiosity because it is the end of all performative religion. Jesus' death and resurrection is the end of all earning and working for our qualification because Jesus is the one who has done it for us. He is the one who has qualified us. As we, as we began in Colossians 1, 12 through 14, we give thanks to the Father because he has qualified us to share in the inheritance of saints. He's delivered us, how? Through his Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is our qualification, not anything that we do. As Paul says elsewhere in Galatians 2.21, he says, I don't nullify the grace of God. I don't treat the grace of God as if it actually doesn't mean anything. I don't void it out, in other words. Because if righteousness were through the law, was through my law keeping and my performance, then Christ would have died for no purpose. The very fact that Jesus died shows that I don't save myself. It's not through my law keeping. If I was saved through my performance, then what did Jesus die for? Jesus died because I didn't perform, because I don't keep the law. And so his death is a decisive death blow to all human religiosity. And so don't look to religion to save you. Don't look to anything that you do. You cannot save yourself. What you can do contributes nothing to salvation. The only thing that we contribute to salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. And the only thing that you can do to be saved is to be found in Christ and his righteousness. As Paul says in Philippians 3, Philippians 3, he was combating you know, similar, similar things. And he says, listen, if anyone thinks that they had reason to boast in their human religious experience and their, their criteria, you look at my resume. Okay, I had the best religious resume. I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. Like, I knew the law. I, I was so zealous. I even persecuted the church, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I count all of this as junk. I count it as garbage. I count it as loss. Why? Like, I don't put my stock in those things. Why? For the sake of knowing Christ. Because of the surpassing worth, a better worth of knowing Jesus and, and being found in him. Being connected to him by faith, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from my law keeping, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so we look to him and we trust in him alone. We don't let anyone disqualify us with human religiosity. Don't, church, don't let anyone pass judgment on you. You are qualified in Christ. Don't allow anyone to disqualify you. You have what you need in Jesus. He is your qualification. And the Lord's Supper is a weekly reminder of that. As Paul says, he wants us to fix our eyes not on these things of earth, not on these human regulations as we'll get to, 
but to fix our mind on the heavenly reality of who we are in Jesus. The Lord's Supper is a weekly way by which we fix our mind on who we are in Jesus. And we're reminded that it is his death that is the ground for our qualification. As we have already read a couple times in that that chapter 1 passage, that he is our qualification. The Father has made us qualified through the Son who has redeemed us, he's purchased us, he's bought us, he's paid our debt to release us as slaves so that we are now sons and daughters in Christ. We have the forgiveness of sins. And the Lord's Supper is a picture of that promise. It's a pictured promise. It is a sign. It's something that, that symbolizes Jesus' death, and it's a seal. It communicates the promise of that imagery. Uh, it is the bread and the cup, Jesus says, are are these emblems of his, of his death, his body and his blood given over in death for us, this very atonement dealing with our sin. 